6, 7, and 8. And it will really be several different places as well in the book of Romans, some of the first Corinthians. So we'll start in Genesis chapter 3, verse number 6. And if you were here this morning, <clears throat> this morning's message was really a 30 or 35 minute, however long it was, intro to this message. Alright? I really didn't plan it that way, but as, as these two messages came together in the series that we're in, it really works as a great segue from this morning to what we talk about this evening. As we saw this morning, <clears throat> the psalmist David asked, why do the heathen rage? Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot the main thing? In essence, he's saying the world is a wreck. The world is raging about everything from wars and genocide to plastic straws and gender definition pronouns. It's a mess. We're in a mess in our world. And in all of this, they're actually raging against God. Which leads us to some of the answers that we, some of the questions and then some of the answers that we'll see tonight. Why is this rage so pervasive? Why does everyone do it? Why has everyone done it throughout time? Well, the answer to mankind's raging is actually found way back at the beginning. Genesis chapter 3, verse number 6. And I invite you back to that verse. We've been there a few times here recently. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, we see Adam and Eve and their raging of the human heart against God. <clears throat> verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he Eight. Really what we see here, if you remember from this morning, Psalm 2-3, where it says that the people say, the ones who are raging, it says we will break their cords, we will, we will cut ourselves off from them, we will cast them away from us. What we have here in Genesis 3, verse 6, is really Psalm 2, verse 3, dramatized for us. Where Adam and Eve come before, the serpent comes before Eve here, and Eve eats, and she gives to Adam, and he eats. And what they do is they rage against God. And they cast off God from them and say, we don't want that connection anymore. They plotted a vain thing, and they paid a steep, steep price. In the corruption of their own hearts, they exchanged what was valuable for what was vain. You know, at the, at the moment, in verse 6, it says they valued three things. She says it was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and it was a tree desirable to make one wise. But what they valued in that moment, did it turn out to be so valuable? It turned out to be a wreck. And is it not true that sin never quite goes as we might hope it will? It never quite turns out the way that we want it to turn out. And very quickly here, their sin became vanity, became vain. They plotted a vain thing. Look at verse 7. The eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. They experienced here in verse 7, right after their, their sin, they experienced shame for the first time. And they realized they were naked. Verse 8, they experienced fear for the first time. Verse 8, they hear, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now there's a change. Because what did they used to do with Here, they now experience fear and they hide from God 
In verse 23, they face rejection for the first time. And the, the, the first really visible punishment that they face. Now, I'm not saying they didn't face punishment already. God goes through the curses like that. But a lot of that was internal. It wasn't visibly external yet. But their first really external visible punishment was in verse 23 when it says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. They experienced rejection. And then only a few short verses later, and I, I don't know exactly how many years later, in chapter 4, verse 8, they experience the first human death when one of their own sons kills one of their own sons. Verse 8, chapter 4, Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field. that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. The raging against God brought about by sin was in full swing already. It didn't take too long, did it? Didn't take too long to go to one of what we would qualify as, you know, the, the capital sins. The, the worst of the worst sins. Murder. But what we see demonstrated here in Cain is actually very important for us. It helps in our understanding of sin and its pervasiveness. Because look at this. Adam and Eve sinned, right? Was Cain around when they sinned? No. They give birth to Cain, chapter 4, verse 1. And by verse 8, Cain has killed Abel. Which seems to show us that Cain didn't get a fresh start, did he? He didn't get a clean slate not marred by sin. You know, the question is asked, okay, Adam and Eve sinned, but what about the people after them? Was the, the inherent nature in Cain free of the sin that his parents committed? And the answer is no. You see how quickly that transference of the inherent nature of sin takes place. And Cain actually takes that sin a huge step forward in his vileness when he kills his brother. And what Cain's actions show us here is that he was not free from the effects of sin. He was actually in bondage to sin also. Even though Adam and Eve were the ones guilty of sin, that nature was passed on to Cain and he just advances sin a little bit further. And it helps us to start to answer this question, which I think is a, a, a foundational question for us, and it's this question. How do we get from Adam and Eve's sin in Genesis 3.6 to all have sin in Romans 3.23? How do we get from the sin of, of two people, our, our founding father and mother, as it were, how do we get from their sin to the pervasiveness of sin that Romans 3.23 says all have sin, all have fallen short, of the glory of God. Why is it that Adam and Eve's sin has such a powerful and, and eternal or universal impact? And I think this is a fundamental question because it's important that we understand the pervasiveness and destructive nature of sin. If we don't understand sin, guess what we will also not understand? Salvation. If we don't understand sin, we won't understand salvation. To diminish the effects and atrocities of sin is to diminish the glory of salvation from that sin. Tomorrow we're going to take the uh, middle school and high schoolers to the Creation Museum. And having been there before, the boys were able to go with us uh, a couple summers ago. I think it was summer of 2020. And they walk you through, if you've ever been there before, they walk you through the seven C's that they call it creation, uh, corruption, catastrophe, and other C's. Um, 
But you walk out of creation, it's beautiful, you know, everything's great. And the last kind of thing there in that storyline is Adam and Eve with the serpent around the tree. And then you kind of walk into this next corridor, and everything changes. It's like this dark hallway. It's a little foreboding. And actually, when we went there with the boys, and they were a couple years younger than they are now, there was almost like this, if you remember this, Bryson, there was almost like a, a fear of walking into that area, because it was purposely made to look that way. You walk through this hallway, and there's these pictures of all the atrocities of sin down through the years. Mass genocide and whatnot. You know, if there is no bad news, when you come out on the other side of that, if there is no bad news, then there's no need for what? Good news. If there's no sin, then we need no Savior. Has Christ died in vain? Well, if we don't recognize sin for what it is, then he has. So how do all sin because Adam sinned? That's our question tonight. How do all sin because Adam sinned? First, we have to acknowledge that all do sin. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Can you argue that point? I don't think anybody can. There might be some, some seemingly intelligent people who have professed themselves to be wise, but have become fools, that might try to say, well, it's not really sin, it's not really this, it's your environment, it's the way you're raised, it's this, that, or the other thing. But if we look at the world around us, if we watch the news for 10 minutes, if we watch a kid for 10 seconds, we realize that something exists in all of us. And that is the proclivity to do what is wrong. And I would dare say that in a group of, of Christian people, if we were able to see in some, some happenstance, we were able to see each other's minds and the thoughts we think, and the things going through our minds, I, I would say that this room would seem much darker because of sin. It's that pervasive. But how did it get that way? Why is everyone guilty of sin? say, well, Adam needs sin. I didn't sin. I wouldn't have done that. Who would have? But how does their sin become my sin? Well, we're going to get to a couple of verses here in a second, but I want to kind of define a theological term, and that is we are all, because of Adam's sin, we are all corrupted with what is termed original sin. Original sin. This theological term, it does not refer to, and a lot of people think this, a lot of people think that when you hear the term original sin, it's talking, to the it's talking about the initial sin that Adam and Eve committed. It's not what it's talking about, though it is definitely tied to that. Original sin is the natural condition of all mankind that has been inherited ancestrally from the first man, Adam, and possessed in us from birth. And this condition causes us to think, speak, and behave in a way that is opposed to God's will and law. It is the natural condition of human nature. Theologian Anthony Hukuma defines original sin as this, the sinful state and condition in which every human being is born. Every human being from Adam. Martin Luther, in his smaller catechism, defines original sin as the total corruption of our whole human nature. So when you hear the term original thing, sin, excuse me, think of it as a condition, not an act. Original sin is not an act, it is a condition. But that condition then engenders all sorts of sinful acts. Does that make sense? So it's a condition that we are born into. And the Bible speaks of this in several places. Psalm 51.5, if you know Psalm 51, that's the one where David 
is repenting for his sin with Bathsheba. And he goes through this, this repentance and this crying out of his heart. And in verse 5 it says, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin my mother conceived me. Meaning that sin nature was present from where? Very early on. In sin my mother conceived me. Romans 3, the passage we read in our scripture reading, there is none who does good, there is none righteous, no, not one. All have gone out of the way, they've gone their own way, poisonous. In the, it, it just shows you how, how uh, intense the sinful nature is. And then Ephesians 2, 3 says that we are all by nature, by nature, the children of wrath. We all are guilty of original sin. It is the condition that we are in. But yet the question still is kind of out there, isn't it? How did that, what we have now, how did we get that from Adam? How did the nature of Adam's sin become our nature? Why is that passed down to us? That was his problem at his time, right? We should get a fresh slate. We should get our own chance. Romans 5.12 says, as we read earlier, Just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die. Romans 5.19 says, One man's disobedience, or because of one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. And here's the answer to the question. Sin and its consequences spreads to all of Adam's progeny, all of Adam's offspring, because we were all in Adam, as it were. We all come from Adam and Eve. The lineage of humanity comes from them. John MacArthur has something uh, very helpful. It's actually in his study Bible. Um, I'm going to read this. Because he very, very clearly says this here to help us understand it. He says this. God appointed Adam to be the representative of the entire human race that descended from him. When Adam sinned, all mankind sinned. That is, God imputed the guilt of his sin to all those yet in his loins. Who's that? It's all of us. I'll show you that in scripture as well, not just his words, but Romans 5 verse 18 talks about this. Romans 5, verse 18, it says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. So because of Adam's offense, we are all condemned under sin, bringing judgment on us. MacArthur continues, And since his sin transformed his inner nature and brought spiritual death and depravity, that sinful nature would be passed on to his posterity as well. So sin and its debilitating consequences are inherent in us because we are whose offspring? We're Adam's offspring. The nature of his sin becomes the nature of our sins. We are descendants of Adam, therefore we are in Adam, therefore we are in sin. So we are sinners by nature. But there's another side of that too. Are we only sinners by nature? We are also sinners by choice. By choice. We choose to sin. Do we not? It's in our nature and inherent sin. That's what original sin is. It's a condition. But we also choose to sin. And we'd be wrong to say we don't choose to sin every day, either in thought, word, or deed. 
you remember that, that passage in Romans 7 where Paul's like going back, back and forth with himself? And he says, I want to do this, but I can't do that. I always end up doing this, though I don't want to, but my sinful nature causes me to do this. But yet I don't want to do that. I want to. And he's got that battle going on between him where he says, I don't want to do what was wrong, but sometimes I fall into doing what is wrong. And that's that where he says, I choose because that evil, that, that, that sinful nature is within me. And I think if anybody were to scoff at the nature or scoff at the sin nature being inherent, inherent in each one of us, we would only need to look at every person who has ever lived. Every person has chosen to sin. You would think if the sin nature was not inherent and it was only choice, that somebody somewhere would have the right environment, the right situations, in order to kind of slip by and not fall into sin out of the billions of people in our world today and throughout all of history, would statistics not lend us to think maybe one somewhere would slip through and just have it right? So not only choice, but also the inherency of our sin nature seems to indicate the universality of sin. We are sinners by nature, and we are sinners by choice. From Adam, every single person. Which takes us a little bit of a step further, because if sin was just sin and had no consequences, it wouldn't be such a big deal. Sin's just sin, it's just something everybody does. And if there were no consequences, not, not, a, not a big thing to worry about, but I think it's the consequences of sin that really drop the hammer on us. Disease, destruction, death, and the wages of sin is death. The list goes on and on and on with the consequences of sin. But I think the greatest consequence of sin is this. The biggest consequence of sin is that because of our sin, we have no way of remedying our sin. We are sinners, and because of that, we have no way of getting ourselves out of that sin. And this would be the doctrine of total depravity. It's, it's well stated in our, in our doctrinal statement number, our church doctrinal statement number five. It says this, we believe that all men are by nature and choice sinful and lost and have within themselves no possible means of salvation. Quoting Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Romans 3, 10 through 19, and Romans 3, 23. The doctrine of total depravity is that we have within ourselves, because of sin, no possible means of salvation. We can't get our salvation on our own. One of my professors in seminary he said, when I say total depravity, you say total inability. That's what it means. You are totally unable to procure salvation on your own because of sin. Ephesians 2.1 says, you who were dead in sin. It's pretty clear. He says, because of sin, we are dead in our sins. Because of sin, we are dead in our sins. Now, I, I compiled a list for you tonight of all the things that a, a dead person can do. And I have it right here somewhere. Oh, that's right. It doesn't exist. There's nothing that a sinful person, or a person dead in their sins, a person dead can do, right? So when Jesus, or when the Bible says that we are dead in sin, what is he meaning? 
you're dead. You are spiritually unable to come to Christ. Spiritually unable to get out of your sin. Because it's not sick. The metaphor is not you're sick in your sins. It's not you're just a little bit debilitated. It is that you are dead. And so there has to be somebody, something else, someone else that gets you undead from your sins. Now, Jesus was clear in this. Go to John chapter 8, verse 43. Jesus did not mince words when it came to talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. They thought they were really something, and they thought they had it all figured out. John 8, 43. Jesus speaks here to the Pharisees about their total depravity. John 8, 43. They're going back and forth about who Christ is. Let's start at verse 42, so we can kind of run up to verse 43. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Verse 43, key verse. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. Did you catch that? That's total depravity. The inability. Jesus says, why are you not getting what I am telling you? Why are you not understanding that I came from the Father? And it does not, he does not say that they, they decided not to or they wouldn't listen to him. He says they're not listening because they can't listen. They're dead in their sins. And that's the truth with all of us, as it says in Ephesians 2, verse 1, that we are dead in our sins. That's, that's pretty bad. We're, we're pretty stuck, if that's the case. So if sin is so universal, as we've said tonight, and sin is so pervasive, and sin is so debilitating, how is it then overcome? I want to show you three verses. And so far tonight, I've read the first half of each one of these verses. The second half is the good part. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 22. First Corinthians 15, 22. Reference this verse earlier. I'll reference the first few words. <clears throat> talking about the pervasiveness of sin. For as in, as in Adam, all die. But look at the rest of the verse. As in Adam, all die, even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. Now we know that to be all who believe shall be made alive. Now go to Romans chapter 5. Read the first part of these two verses earlier. I'll read the second part to you. Verses 18 and 19. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. It says, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Now look at verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. In both of these verses, it's pretty bad news for us. That what was true of Adam is true of us as well. But now let's read the whole verse. 
verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. The exceptional solution to original sin is that what Adam does, Christ undoes. You see that? What we are guilty of through Adam, what is our nature through Adam, what we inherit through Adam, Christ comes along. And what was true about Adam's disobedience and that being true in us, now because of, because of Christ, what was true in Christ, his righteousness can also be true in us. So the first Adam sins and thus imputes sin to all of us, plunging us into total depravity. But the last Adam, Christ, as he's referred to, he was sacrificed, thus imputing righteousness to all who believes. So the first Adam imputes his sin to us, but the last Adam, Christ, comes along and imputes his righteousness to us. Here we see Adam as the representative of all of us, plunging us into sin, but Christ comes along as the substitute for all of us, providing salvation for all who believe. What we could not do because of our depravity, Christ does on our behalf. And as we've made clear tonight, everyone, by, by nature of their humanity, belongs to Adam's race. Therefore, we are sinners. But everyone who believes, by nature of the grace of God, through faith in Christ, belongs to Christ. That's the transition. No longer belonging to Adam. In a human sense, yes. In a spiritual sense, because of faith in Christ, we belong now to Christ. As we once were in Adam, we so now we are in Christ. As we know, sin is universal in its scope and effect. This is, the, this is where salvation differs. Salvation is not universal in its scope. It is offered universally, but it's limited to whom? Those who believe in Jesus. There's no such thing as a universal salvation where everybody's getting there, we're just kind of going through life in different ways and we'll meet up in the end. No, it's only through Christ. Adam's sin was the way into destruction, but Jesus comes along and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life that leads to salvation. What Adam plunges us into, Christ grabs us out of. John Newton, as you know, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, definitely understood the, the depravity of sin and the, the pervasiveness of sin as a slave ship captain. If you ever read about his life, it is, it is grotesque, some of the things that, that happened under his watch. But, by the grace of God, he also understood the grace of God. And he said this later in life. He said this, Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. It doesn't get much better than that. I am a great sinner. In Adam, 